It's nothing like Christmas music to continue to get you in this Christmas spirit and help you to really focus in and and understand what Christmas is is all about. Uh, Mary, did you know is one of my favorite Christmas songs. I think I heard it twice on the radio. Just what little bit I was in the in the truck yesterday uh, morning, and then again in the afternoon. I love that song. It's just, it's written from the perspective of in the future, kind of looking back over Mary's life and did she really truly fully grasp what Jesus was going to be or who he was going to be and what the angels had declared to her and and I think it's written I've never read up on how the and why the author wrote in such a way but but every time I hear the song and sing along with it I think of that verse in the Bible that talks about how Jesus pondered all these things in her heart she thought about who this little boy was and was going to be and then later in life looking back and contemplating all that he had become and what he had done. And so Christmas is such a wonderful season of the year, not just for celebrations and parties and get-togethers and presents and all of the good things that we do and enjoy, but it's about Jesus doing what we cannot do for ourselves. It culminates in what we celebrate for Easter. If you got your Bible, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to continue walking uh, through the book of Revelation this morning. Uh, next Sunday, I'm going to step out of Revelation for a week, obviously with it being the Sunday before Christmas, and I will preach on the coming of Jesus, and we will celebrate Christmas uh, on from that perspective. And then Christmas Eve, I want to encourage you to be back and worship with us on Christmas Eve at 4.30 in the afternoon. Bring family, bring friends with you. It's our traditional Christmas candlelight service. It'll be about 45 minutes to an hour long. Uh, be a lot of fun, a lot of things for the kids, and uh, so we don't have any child care that day. We want it to be very family-oriented, so there will be activities for your children to, to do or to use there in the seats, but there will also be things that we'll be uh, engaging and interacting with the children with as far as music, and we're going to have uh, reading the Christmas story, and so it's going to be a fun, enjoyable time as it always is, and then we'll culminate with singing to candlelight, and um, maybe by that time it'll be dark outside if if we play our uh, cards right. So uh, it's going to be a good, good time next week as we get rocking and rolling with, with Christmas. I want you to think about the con- concept of success. What is success? How do you measure success? How, do you, how would you define success? Uh, that's a big question that many times we ask in our lives. We ask in our occupations. We ask in, in, in our families, what is success? look like. The Shallow Christian Saints, which was my alma mater, my high school that I graduated from, it's a ministry of my home church, and uh, they're historically very, very good in football. And so this past Friday night, they squared off against the uh, Joe T. Robinson Senators, the school that's outside of Little Rock. They squared off in Little Rock in War Memorial Stadium for the 4A state championship. Shallow came into that game 14-0. Joe T. Robinson came into that game 13-1, and they had a massive, massive battle right there Friday night under the lights in Little Rock, Arkansas. Unfortunately, my Shallow Christian Saints, which have had a phenomenal season, in fact, the receiver I read the other day had caught his 30th touchdown reception of the season. I've never even heard of something like that. It's just a phenomenal season that they've had. But unfortunately, they couldn't overcome the four turnovers they had during the game and lost 56-28. to 28. When you think about that, that is a devastating feeling. I, I remember uh, in high school, my senior year, we were 12-1. and 1. We were going into the uh, final game of our season, third round of the playoffs, 12-0. and 0. I mean, just rocking and rolling as a team. And we squared off against the Boxite, and I don't even remember what their uh, mascot is, probably some sort of iron or something. But the team from Boxite, little community in southern Arkansas. And they went on to win the state championship, and we felt just absolutely devastated after that loss. And so I can imagine what the players and the coaches and the fans felt like Friday night watching what they saw come to an end. I mean, think about it, how devastating it is. When that happens, does such a loss mean that the season was unsuccessful? Would you deem it as a failure? Uh, I don't know about those Friday night, but I remember how I felt that Friday evening when we lost our game my senior year, and I knew for that would be the last time that I stepped onto a football field as a player. I remember how devastating I felt. 
But as I look back, even over that game, I look back over the season, I didn't deem it as a failure. And so perhaps some might have thought that Friday night as they felt the, the pain of the loss. Maybe the reason they would have felt that is because they went into the game preparing to win. They went in with this goal in mind that our goal, our, the way we're going to measure success is on the scoreboard when our points are more than their points. But I believe as time goes on, they're going to begin to look back and be able to look back over this season and the things that they've accomplished and the goals that they were able to cross off. And they're going to be able to appreciate all the things that they were able to do during this season. They're going to cherish the victories on the field as well as those that came off the field. They're going to realize that all their weekly preparation, not just taught, not just taught them how to play football, didn't just prepare them for certain games, but it taught them to be men. It taught them how to be disciplined. It taught them how to prepare and to train for the things of life. And they're going to be able to look back over this season, though they lost in the state championship, but be able to say that was a successful season. When it comes down to football, really the easiest way you measure success is wins and losses. We especially see that this time of the year when in the college ranks, coaches are being hired and fired based upon that metric of success. When it comes down to it, no matter who the coach is or the program, the wins or the losses, what really I think measures success better than anything else is this idea of faithfulness. You see, every coach strives to instill faithfulness to their particular system. A coach will come in, a new coach. My uh, college football team, Arkansas Razorbacks, hired a new coach this week. And so I've listened to him this week on different interviews. And he's coming in and he's talking about what his system's going to look like and how they're going to run an offense and what the defense is going to be, what their process is going to be. He's talking about the system. But really when it comes down to it, what he wants his people to do, his players, is to buy in and be faithful to to the system. And if they're faithful to execute the system, then success on some level will follow. And I say some level intentionally because not all programs are the same. Not all schools are the same. Not all communities produce the same levels of talent year in and year out. Some com- communities produce more talented players than other communities or more some some teams or some schools have more resources than others and so you can't measure one year necessarily to the other but what you do look at as you look at faithfulness and buy into a system to see if there's progress and growth in the players and if the players will commit themselves to be faithful to ex- execute the system to be disciplined to do with the coaches instilling into them then they will be successful on some level will they win the state championship not necessarily. When they win a national championship in the college ranks, not necessarily. But they can be successful when there's faithfulness to the system. When we think about the church, I believe the same concept is equally true. The Lord Jesus is looking for faithfulness in his players. See, in the church, faithfulness is more important than success. What we're going to see this morning as we look at this next church, the church in the city of Philadelphia, we're going to see that it doesn't really matter how big you are as a church, how influential you are as a church. Faithfulness is what really moves the heart of God. God is looking for faithfulness in his people. He's looking for his followers, his believers, those who are redeemed and followers of Jesus Christ to believe in him and to walk in faithfulness. And that's what moves the heart of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at this church in Philadelphia, and Jesus' message to this church is simply this, keep walking. Philadelphia, keep walking. Look with me there in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. We're going to read through verse 13. And Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. city of Philadelphia lay about 30 miles southeast of the city of Sardis. It was on the main trade route from Smyrna on the coast to Mysia, to Lydia, and to Phrygia to the east. Phrygia, sorry about that. That's all those words, you know. Phrygia. It's really cold there. It was also set on the Roman poster route. So the Roman poster route, the way they would carry their mail, their letters, or transactions, kind of went counterclockwise. And so uh, they, they would move around in a circle there. And so the city of Philadelphia set on that road as well. And so these routes positioned it, much like what we've seen in these other cities, it positioned it for commerce, for business, for trade. And so this city had a lot of benefits to it. It was also known as the gateway to the east. In addition, the land surrounding the city was volcanic. And so the soil there was very fertile, and it was a a type of soil that grew grapes really well. And so that was their agricultural product. So the agriculture added to the prosperity of the city. Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities mentioned here by Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. It was founded sometime around 190, or 189 B.C. by either Eumenes II, who was the king of Pergamum, or his younger brother, Attalus Philadelphus. He was named this because of his love for his older brother, and so they gave him that tagline, Philadelphus, which means brotherly love. Uh, He was one that supported his brother. He was one that did not come against his brother. And so either he started the city or his older brother started the city. And it was named in honor of how this younger brother loved his older brother. So as the gateway to the east, this Pergamum city was expected to act like a missionary. It's funny how Jesus uses the idea of an open door. That's sort of the same concept that this city itself was to the eastern part of Mesopotamia there, or Asia Minor. And so they were known, or to be known, as a missionary city, introducing Lydia and Phrygia to Greek ways and to make them loyal subjects. And they did a really good job. History tells us that uh, these other areas who had their own languages by the first century only spoke Greek. It was the predominant language in that area, and so they were successful. As great as this city was, it did have one problem. It was prone to earthquakes, sort of like living in California. You never knew when the next one was going to erupt. And so the earthquake that devastated Sardis that we looked at uh, already in AD 17 also leveled the city of Philadelphia. In fact, they were closer to the fault line, and so they experienced several aftershocks for some time, all due to the proximity of being close to the fault these led to the citizens of the city getting to a place in their own lives where they became, became a, a, a very anxious about living within the city walls because every time they would build something, another aftershock would take place and it would either crumble or crack and they would have to tear it down and rebuild. And so they began to move outside the city, sprawling, around, sprawling out along the countryside in simple houses. The church here in Philadelphia was like the other ones, in that it was, it was planted most likely by disciples of Paul. You remember in the book of Acts, it tells that Paul went to Ephesus, and he spent some time there, and in a period of, what, 18 months or so, all of Asia, the Bible says, had heard the gospel. All in Asia had heard the gospel. And so through that movement is where these cities began to hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and churches were birthed. So Revelation chapter 3, we see here this church, Philadelphia, much like what we read in chapter 2 in the city of Smyrna, 
being blessed by the Lord and not having anything negative said about them. We also see the, a similarity between these two cities in that they lived among pagans. They worship, these people worship many gods, and the imperial cult was a very critical aspect of the city's culture. And believers also, in addition to that, perhaps even more, face persecution from the Jews themselves, even though in this particular city there doesn't seem to be a large, strong Jewish population like it was in other places. And so Jesus here reveals himself to the Philadelphian believers as, look there in verse 7, the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus reveals Himself to these believers and says, I am the Holy One. I am the One who is set apart. I am holy in every way. I am true. I'm authentic. I'm real. I'm not an idol on a shelf. I'm not an idol in a temple. I am the God who spoke and everything exists. He also speaks of himself as the holder of the key of David. In other words, he is the king of the messianic kingdom. city of Philadelphia may be the gateway to the east. I'm the gateway to salvation. I am the king of the messianic kingdom. And all power lies in his divine hand. See, the one who holds the key holds the power. The one who holds the key has dominion and authority. And he also goes on to, to, to kind of flesh that out even more when he says, what I open remains open, what I shut remains shut. No one can open what I've shut, and no one can shut what I have opened. So we read here the words, and we're reminded that Jesus is holy, he's active, and he's all-powerful in the lives of these believers. And as we read it, we realize he's the same for us. Jesus is holy in our life. Jesus is active in our life. And Jesus holds the power over and in our lives. Then we move to verse 8, and he says again what we read in all of these other letters. He says, I know your works. He completely knows with full knowledge what this church has experienced, the things that they're going through, the difficulties, the blessings. He knows everything about their lives. And because he knows, he can speak to their situation. Just as with Smyrna, there's nothing but approval and there's nothing but commendation for this church in this particular city. And so Jesus' message to Philadelphia reveals to us four characteristics of this particular church. And I'm just going to add here that these ought to be characteristics of our personal lives as well of as our church. Characteristic first that we see is limited influence. Now, I don't necessarily want this characteristic. I would rather have the other three but it really doesn't matter how much influence we have. It all comes down to how are we going to live our lives before others. And this particular church had a limited influence into their culture. As we read the text here, the emphasis is not placed on the fact that they had no, they had no strength within them as if they were just limp and lifeless. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that there is a limited amount of influence that you're making into the culture, but the power of God is still in you. The power of God is still fueling you. The power of God is there. It's not devoid. It's not absent. But you're just not making that much impact, which is not something we are necessarily judged on. It goes back to that opening illustration of how do you define success? If we're going to look at the church and say, all right, a successful church is, is running X amount in attendance, then that might not line up with what we're seeing here in Scripture. But if we look and say, all right, how do we define success? Success is defined based upon this, when a people of God are faithful, buy into the system, believe the Lord, obey His Word, that's faithfulness. And so this church was not large, it was not strong, it was not influential necessarily, but Jesus here declares to us it was a faithful church. Leads us to a second characteristic. That is remarkable obedience. They had remarkable obedience in their lives. He goes on to say, you have kept my word. Chapter 2, verse 26, as well as in chapter 3, verse 3, the church is commanded to keep or to remain faithful to Christ's deeds and truths of the church. And that is exactly what this church was doing. 
The Philadelphian believers had not only guarded the gospel from error, which is something the church must do and has to do and and ought to do. We ought to guard the gospel, guard the doctrine of the word of God and, and make sure that error does not slip into our teachings and our beliefs. But they not only did that, they also obeyed it in the midst of severe persecution. When it would have been easy and perhaps more pragmatic to say, I want to be faithful to the Lord and His Word, but it's coming against me, or this this persecution is coming against me so strongly that I don't think that I can do that, so I'm going to back up a little bit. That's not what this church did. Obedience to Christ's commands was not up for debate in their congregation. They had remarkable obedience. This led to a third characteristic, and that is unwavering loyalty. He goes on to say, and have not denied my name. You see, unlike the sardines, sardines, they had not denied knowing. That's very rude of you. I see that I think of fish. Sardines, let's say it that way, sardines. Unlike the church that we looked at last week, the sardines, they had not denied knowing the name of Christ. You see, it was easy and convenient for those in Sardis to, to, to back off. It was easy and convenient for them because of the pressures that they would have faced to just simply say, you know what, I want to be a closet Christian. I want to be a, clo- a Christian in, in, in perhaps name only. And so because of whatever, maybe it's persecution, maybe it's suffering, but in Sardis a lot of it was just the prosperity and, and the culture that they lived in. It's kind of laissez-faire type culture and they just kind of want to go along and have Jesus. They want to have everything that the world offered but also have the forgiveness of Christ and eternity waiting them. That's where Sardis was. And so they didn't really live for the name of Jesus. That was not like those in Philadelphia. They were unwavering in their loyalty. In fact, it even seems that this church had experienced some sort of recent difficult time of persecution at the hands of the Jews because he speaks of those of the synagogue of Satan. It's the same sort of reference that he said earlier when he was addressing the church there in Smyrna who was also faithful to the Lord with nothing bad whatsoever to say of them. They remain faithful to the Lord. We see in Revelation 14, and we will see when we get there, that believers who are present during the tribulation will refuse to take the mark of the beast. They are like those that are here in the church of Philadelphia who refuse to recant of their faith even in the face of the most extreme persecution. Even when there's a a gun to their head or there's some sort of threat of execution and they will not back away from the name of Jesus, unwavering in their loyalty to Christ and Him alone. This leads to a fourth characteristic, and that is patient endurance. It says in verse 10 that you have kept his word about patient endurance. You see, they knew and understood the apostles' teachings about Christ's endurance and how Jesus had endured unto the end, how he had stood firm for the Father, and how he had told and instructed the believers and the church to do the same, that they are to endure hard times, that they were endure suffering in their life. They knew the stories of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. They knew the apostles' teaching. And so Jesus' example and that of the apostles had become a model of steadfastness for this church who was experiencing its own trials. Isn't it good to have a model in your life? Someone, when, when, when life is going difficult and life is tough and you can look to someone who's already went down that path and, and has come out on the other side victorious, Think about those even in recent days in our church who are now in the midst of battling cancer. And so then when they were first diagnosed, the first thing they want to do is they want to talk with somebody who's already been down that road and has experienced all the things that they've experienced. Gives them encouragement. Gives them a a way to, to, to emulate the good things and the strengthening things in their life. The Bible here teaches us that all true believers who endure to the end, We'll be blessed by God. You see, those whom God has accepted in Christ, those who are sanctified in the Spirit, they will never fall away from that state of grace that they've come into in relationship with Jesus, but they shall persevere to the end. And these believers in Philadelphia, despite the persecution, despite the trials, despite the difficulties, continued to endure because they were faithful. This local church 
even with its limited influence within their community, demonstrated incredible obedience, remarkable obedience. They demonstrated unwavering loyalty and patient endurance in the face of opposition and suffering at the hands of those of the synagogue of Satan. Just as with Smyrna, we see here that it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how many how much activity you have in religious things. It doesn't matter about your pedigree. None of that makes you right with God. None of that transforms you. None of that brings a change of a heart in your life. Transformation only comes exclusively through a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why these here in verse 9, who Jesus refers to as the synagogue of Satan, who says that they are the people of God, and these who are following this Jesus are not the people of God. Jesus says to this church and says, no, 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 they're not the people of God. It's just what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, that, it, that it's... To be a child of Abraham is more than blood. It's more than, than a pedigree. It all comes down to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what makes you a child of Abraham, a child of faith, a child of God. And so Jesus commends this church for their buy-in, for their faithfulness, and he dispels those who would say, I'm a, I'm a child of God or I'm a follower of God simply because, and they list their religious activity. Sometimes that happens in the modern church. People think that they're okay because their name is on a church roll or they were born and raised in community within a church. They went to Sunday school. They, they did all of these things. And I think I said it last week, one of the saddest, most uh, um, sorrowful pictures in the entire Bible is found in Matthew chapter 22 when people will line up before the Lord one day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not? And they will list this, this big list of things that they have done and participated in. And Jesus will look at them and say, I don't know you. Depart from me. See, it's not about religious activity. It's about faith in Jesus. It's about turning your sin over to him. And these believers had done that. And because they had believed in Jesus, because they were walking in faith, because they were enduring in this faith. Jesus makes a promise to him in verse 10. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Right here we find one of the initial distinctive eschatological or end time references to the great tribulation, that time of suffering and, 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 and heartache which is going to precede the return of the Lord Jesus. Right here in verse 10, it's also a verse that is highly controversial, a lot of different interpretations of how we should understand what Jesus is saying in these words. And so much of the debate centers around the preposition that is translated in the ESV as from. It's the Greek preposition ek. And so it is either going to be understood as the idea of Jesus is going to protect them from something, or it is the idea that Jesus is going to remove them from this hour of trial. Many scholars connect this verse to what Jesus said in John 17, 15, where he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's praying to the Father here, praying for his followers. And he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so those who would connect this preposition and this particular understanding to John 17, 15 would, would, would use it as the understanding of having some sort of local force, meaning protection, out from within. And the idea here is, is that what Jesus is praying to the Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They read into this and interpret this preposition saying that Jesus is not going to remove his bride from the trials, from the great tribulation, but he's going to protect them from within as they go through this period of tribulation. Others would look at this interpretation and say, no, 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 no. John 17, 15 is a different context. It has nothing to do with, with what's going on here. And so they also point out that, that typically in the New Testament, that in this situation, to read it that way, the writer would use different prepositions. He would use the preposition that's translated in, or he would use the preposition that's translated through. 
And so if they, what they're saying is if, if you're understanding this verse saying that Jesus is going to protect you while in the great tribulation, then he should have used different prepositions to do this. I think linguistically we can interpret it in both ways the way it is written. And so then how do you understand and make sense of what Jesus is saying to this church in Philadelphia? Here's where context comes into play. And context always comes into play, but this is how we interpret what's going on here, what's being said. It comes down to context. When Jesus says the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, clearly this is a reference to a final end time period of trials that's going to precede the return of Jesus Christ. I think we could all agree on that. The whole world connotation connects it to other biblical references that would speak of this messianic judgment to come. And so I think we can agree that he's speaking that this is cataclysmic, this is a whole world type of judgment. We also see in Revelation that the seals, trumpets, and bowls are judgments that fall upon the earth and it is the kings of the earth who cry out in the midst of the wrath. We are going to Revelation chapter 6. I know I'm getting technical here, but I'm making the context. We go to chapter 6. We begin to see all these things. And what you see is that in chapter 6, these seals that are being broken. And if you're reading through the Bible with me, we read this chapter devotionally this morning, if you're with me. And so if you see there that as the seals are broken, they are poured out on apostate men or ungodly unbelievers, people who have denied the gospel, refused the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. And so these judgments are falling upon the quote-unquote earth, and the earth dwellers is always a reference to unbelievers, not necessarily a reference to humanity, right? A reference to unbelievers. Also, we move ahead in the story to chapter 9, and we see in the trumpets that God commands the locusts to harm only the unbelievers, chapter 9, verse 4. In chapter 12, we see that the woman flees to the desert where she is cared for during this period of tribulation. So what, what we're seeing here is there seems to be a clear distinction as to who is experiencing the wrath of God. And so that's the context I'm talking about here. When we're seeking to understand what Jesus is saying to Philadelphia in verse 10, where he says, I will protect you from this hour of trial, I don't personally believe Jesus is saying he's going to remove the church from the hour of trial, remove them from the great tribulation. I believe it's very similar to what we see in the book of Exodus when Moses is pouring out the ten plagues upon Egypt. They never touch the people of God there in Egypt. They're only upon the Egyptians. And so what I believe we see here is a clear uh, distinction and a clear point of reference to a post-tribulation rapture instead of a pre-tribulation rapture. But I understand this morning that there is still much debate on all of that. And say, I don't want to go through the tribulation. I don't either. But the promise here is not necessarily that you will not experience any hardship during the tribulation, but it does promise you won't experience the wrath of God because that's only poured out on believers. However, you will, if you're still here during the tribulation, you will experience the wrath of the dragon. In fact, some would say, well, that's not very fair for, for believers to go through that, to escape the physical the things that would be coming from God the Father in these judgments and then just die as a martyr. Here's what we find in the New Testament, especially in Revelation. Martyrdom is never, a, 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 the, the concept of martyrdom is never looked at as defeat. It's always looked at in the context of victory. Chapter 6, again this morning, we read of the martyrs who are under the throne of God, and they cry out to God and say, say basically something like this, how much longer until you come and vindicate us? And the concept there is not that they've been defeated by the dragon because they've been martyred for the faith. The concept there is that they have won victory because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put an end to the dragon and to the false, to the false prophet, the beast, the antichrist. All of these things will be done away with. It's a sign of victory. It's antithetical to our thinking. So what does all this mean for the church? It's a promise to them. That the suffering that they are enduring is but for a time. The church in Philadelphia 
exemplified many great and godly characteristics, those four that we've just listed out. Jesus here praises them for their obedience. He praises them for their loyalty. He praises them for their endurance. He encourages them to keep walking in this manner, keep living out the faith, keep modeling what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a culture that wants nothing to do with that. Keep living for Jesus and before others who would rather be religious than to be in relationship. He tells them they are to hold fast, which can require continual effort on their part. They could not be those who just go through the motions. He, they could not be Christians that just want to be Christian in name only. They couldn't be Christians who aren't actively living out their faith. No, Jesus always wants his church to have a hot heart for him. He always wants his church to love him, to buy in, to use the football analogy again, his system. And so he encourages the Philadelphian church to keep walking. And today he encourages this church to keep walking. Let me share with you three things in the next few minutes in regards to how we can and why we should keep walking in our faith. Why we should continue to hold fast to the gospel. We can keep walking, number one, because the Lord Jesus sovereignly stands over you. He sovereignly stands over you. Verse 7, this is the picture. Again, he's the holy one. He's the true one. He's the key, one who holds the key of David. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. He knows the works in your life. He knows the works in our church. He's set before us an open door, door which no one is able to shut. Regardless of how little influence we may have, he says, keep holding on to my word and do not deny my name. You see, the Lord Jesus sovereignly stands over you. It doesn't matter the pressures. It doesn't matter the threats that may come against us. And we don't face a whole lot of that. Let's just be honest. We don't face a lot of persecution. The greatest fear, or, or, or let me say it this way, the greatest sense of pushback that we ever get is someone, when we actually begin to talk about our faith, be like, you really believe that stuff? That's about as much as you'll ever face in the culture we live in. Whereas we could go to places around the world, and if you speak the name, you can be put in prison, you can lose your business, you can be executed. And so we've got it pretty easy in America, which is why we're so much prone to be the Sardis church than we are to be the Philadelphian church. But in all of that, remember, Jesus sovereignly stands over your life. You can keep walking with the Lord because He's holy. You can keep walking with Him because He's true. You can keep walking with Him because He holds the keys of the kingdom. You can keep walking because He alone has the power to open and to shut doors in your life and in those around you. Nothing touches your life. Nothing touches your family. Nothing touches your church or your business or any aspect of your life without first having given permission from King Jesus. You say, I don't like the fact that my family member has cancer. They have cancer because God allowed it to happen. For his glory in some, in some way that perhaps we'll never know until glory, maybe not even then. But the Lord Jesus in his sovereignty and his grace and in his goodness allows and causes things to happen for his good or for his glory and for your good and for my good. Secondly, your momentary trials are producing eternal results. We can keep walking because we can believe that what we're going through are paying huge spiritual dividends. Here Jesus offers vindication to this suffering church to show them that their labor is not in vain. That's what he says in verse 9. He talks about the synagogue of Satan. In fact, that they are lying about who they are in the Lord. And he talks about how they're going to bow down before this church church or these believers and that they're going to learn that I have loved you. This is a vindication. There's two ideas here of how to understand this. One is that of the Jews who think that the people of God through Abraham acknowledging their place as the true people of God through faith. In other words, these Jews would be submitting to the ruling of these believers. This is an end times type of thing. As they're being carted off into judgment, they actually acknowledge that we thought we were the people of God. But you're the people of God. 
And it's a vindication for them. There's another concept here, another interpretation of this. And it goes back to the image in verse 8 of this open door. And, and so what Jesus perhaps is saying to this church is, is, is you're suffering now. You're living out your faith now in the face of persecution, in the face of these J- Jews who think they're doing the right thing. But there's coming a day because of your faithfulness, your commitment to the gospel, that they're going to come to Christ as well. Perhaps we should look at both their interpretations and draw truths from each of them. The Bible teaches us that God uses trials to develop our character, to teach us reliance upon Him, and to demonstrate His power to the world. We also know that people are watching our lives. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, they're all watching and observing how we endure, how we respond to the trials and difficulties that life presents. And so when they see us being faithful, when it would be easy to walk away, they want to know. What is it that makes you different? What is it that, why, why do you tick different than I do? What is it that allows you to have joy when you should be sorrowful? Why is it that you're happy when you should be resentful? It reminds us that when we have loved ones and friends that we've been praying for and sharing the gospel with for years upon years upon years, that there is a coming a day that they can be saved and will be saved. There's a third thing I want you to see in response to keep walking and that is there's protection and reward for those who persevere. Reward and protection for those who persevere. The Bible teaches that all true believers endure to the end. I said it a little bit differently earlier, but as Southern Baptists, we define this, uh, this theological concept in the Baptist faith and message, our doctrinal statement, we define it like this. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation." Now, what I don't want you to hear in that doctrinal statement that I just read for you is, I can go and sin as much as I want, and it doesn't matter at all because I've got the keys to the kingdom, and I get to go to heaven when I die. If that is your concept and philosophy of life, you are sadly, more than likely, on the road to hell. Because if that's your heart, you have no heart for the gospel. If that's your heart, you have no concept of the love of God and what he sacrificed to make it possible for you to be redeemed. No, our response is always in response to the love and the grace of Jesus. I want to be obedient. I want to be loyal. And I want to endure to the end in faith. Even though there's momentary and perhaps even seasons within our lives where we're not walking as closely or as hotly as we should, I usually say we're walking at guilty distance, a phrase that I picked up years ago from, from Johnny Hunt. But when it comes down to it, those who are in Christ will always return. See, the ones who turn away from faith and never return, they were never in the faith to begin with. Because true believers, according to Ephesians chapter 1, are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He becomes a deposit in their life. And so when there's a deposit of God himself in the life of a person, then there's no possible way for that person to not ever come back to the Lord, though they may be walking at a guilty distance. I, again, if you're reading with me through the Bible this year, just a few days ago, read the book of Jonah. You remember the story in Jonah, right? Chapter 1, there in the first few verses, you see that the voice of God, the word of God came to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach judgment to this city. And the Bible tells us that Jonah, rather than getting up and going to Nineveh, got up and got on his ship and went south to Tarshish, exact opposite direction of where he should have been going. And the reason is because he knew that if I go and preach judgment, God is such a good and gracious God that if they hear the judgment and repent of their sin, he will forgive them. And I hate those suckers. I want them to burn in hell. That's really what's going on there in the heart of Jonah. And so God begins to do all sort of things to get Jonah's attention as he's on this ship sleeping in the bottom. They're beginning to be tossed here and there, and the, the, the shipmates that he's with, are, they're freaking out. They're throwing things over the sides. They know that it's about to go down for them. And so finally they begin to talk to Jonah, and he says, yeah, it's me. I'm the problem. Throw me over the boat. They finally do. He's swallowed by a fish. God uses all of that to bring him to a place of brokenness and repentance. And he goes and preaches. He's still ticked off. And then finally the book closes 
he gets right with the Lord. We can have seasons in our life where we're not walking closely with the Lord, but if we love Jesus and Jesus is in us, we will always come home. Perhaps this morning someone needs to come home today. You look at your own spiritual life, you say, you know, it's not what it needs to be, it's not where it should be, and it's time for me to come home. These believers stood with Jesus through these trials. True believers will stand with Jesus through the trials and persecutions of life. They will refuse to recant their faith. They will be rewarded, as verse 10 and following tells us. Talks about how they're going to have, they're going to be pillars of stability in the, in the presence of God. They're going to carry the name of God on them in the city of God, along with the new name of Christ. All of these things speak of the presence and the goodness and the graciousness to God through Jesus to their life. Jesus celebrates, in other words, the faithfulness of these people to his system. So what is success? What is success? How do we measure success in the Christian life? Matthew chapter 25, I want to paraphrase a parable here. We see a picture of success, what it looks like. If you remember this parable, Jesus talks about talents. He, he talks about how this master is going to go on a, away on a long journey, and so this master calls his servants to him, three particular men, and, and to one man, he gives five talents, some sort of uh, uh, measurement of his property. He gives the, this man five talents. To another man, he gives two talents, and to a third servant, he gives one talent. Jesus tells us in this parable that upon leaving, the first servant immediately takes his five. He goes and he invests it, and he earns five more. And so now this first servant has not just five talents, he has ten talents. Well, the second servant did the same thing. He took it, he invested it, and so he turned two into four. The third servant, the Bible tells us that he knew the master to be a hard man, reaping where he didn't sow, and, and so he just knew him as this hard, critical, bah humbug type of guy, and so out of fear of investment, fearing that he might lose something, Jesus says this servant goes and buries what he has been given. Master comes back, he's, there's a day of reckoning, there's a day of accounting, and so the three servants are brought in. The man wants to know what's been done with what he's entrusted to these men, the stewardship that they've enacted over his property. And so the servant that had five brought in the ten and says, I had five, you gave me five, I invested it, here's ten. And so Jesus says, the master says, uh, bless you, uh, you've been faithful with a little, I'll make you faithful and leader over much. The guy with two comes in and says, you gave me two. I've turned it into four. Here, it's yours. Jesus says, the master does the same thing. He says, you've been faithful with a little. I will give you much. Third servant comes in and says, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be one who sows or, or reaps where you did not sow. And, and so out of fear, I went and took what you gave me. I hid it so that no one could steal it. And I have faithfully brought it back to you. And you would think that Jesus would, would, would tell the story in such a way that this man would be blessed because he hid it so it couldn't be stolen. But Jesus says, the master looks at him and says, you wicked and unfaithful servant. He, he curses him and then he takes what he had and he gives it to the guy with ten. The moral of the story is not to go and get a financial advisor and go play the stock market. That is not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is this. Be faithful with what God's given you and trust him with it. Be faithful. Buy into the system. What is success? Success is not having a huge bank account. Success is not having a big house. Success is not being a big church with a lot of influence. Case in point, the church of Philadelphia. Success in the life of a Christian, success in the life of the local church is faithfulness to God in his word. That's what success is. Some churches grow to thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Some never hit 100. Who are we to judge what is faithful? Now, you say, well, we're, we're doing pretty good then. I don't know about it. I don't know. Are we being faithful to the potential God has for us as a church? That's where it comes down to. Are we being faithful to the potential that we have and what God has planned for us? Are we a five-talent church, a two-talent church, or a one-talent church? It doesn't matter how many talents you have. It matters what you do with the talents God has given you. That's the message of Matthew chapter 25. What is success? It's faithfulness. Success is faithfulness. The believers here in Philadelphia were faithful. They were loyal. They were obedient. They were enduring. 
This morning you may say, well, I don't really have these characteristics in my life. In fact, my, my life, my spiritual life, may be better characterized as a failure itself because I'm not living up to any of that. Well, there's good news for you. The good news is that you're created by God, and so because you're created by God in the image of God, He loves you. He loves you so much that He has done everything necessary because with good news, there's bad news. Bad news is, is that we're all sinners. We're all a bunch of failures. God has given us so much, and we have squandered it living for ourselves, living for sin, living for the things of this world. And because of our sin, your sin, my sin, we are separated from God. That's what the Bible says. But the great news, the best news is this, that even in our sin, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. You know why I love Christmas? It's that whole word, that whole name that, that encompasses so many of our Christmas songs, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Jesus, God the Son, came to earth to die on a cross so that you and I, in our sinfulness, could be forgiven and have a relationship with God the Father through God the Son. And so if you're a failure today, you're in good company because we're all failures. The only one that makes us a success is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? And if you do know him, are you walking with him? Wherever you're at spiritually today, come home. Slide in closer to the Lord. Lean in a little nearer to the face of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you that you love us. God, we thank you this morning that you care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have so many good things that you want to do in us, through us, and for us. God, I thank you for the words that you gave to this church in Philadelphia. These men and women who are struggling, these men and women who were really suffering at the hands of religious people, those who thought they were doing the right thing. Lord, they were suffering. But they continued to keep doing what they knew to do. They continued to hold firm to your word. They continued to preach the gospel. They continued to be faithful to live out the gospel in their community. And because of that, Lord, the message you proclaimed over their lives and over their church was success. They were successful. Not because they were bigger, not because they were better. They were success because they were faithful. And Lord, that's what you're looking for in our this morning, sitting in this room, people from all walks of life. Some today are walking with you, God. Some today are not. Some are Christians, but Lord, they've been they've been away for some time. Oh, they may be in church every Sunday. They may be going through religious activity. But Lord, if the truth be known, they're not walking with you. Today they can come home. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's grace always available. So Lord, I pray that you'd search our hearts. Show us where we're at spiritually. The Lord is the Spirit of God declares in each of these letters, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, may we have ears to hear today and respond. Lord, I pray for those who are far from God, dead in their sin and trespasses, separated from you. Lord, I pray today that they would understand that you love them, you care for them. Lord, you want to forgive their sins. May they come in faith and even this morning in this time of response. God, help us to be faithful. Continue to mold us as a church to model what it means to live for Jesus in our community. It doesn't matter if we run X amount of people. Lord, we need to be known. What you're looking for is faithfulness. Are we faithful to the gospel? Pray your blessings upon this time of invitation, this time of response. Help us to live and to respond in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to our feet.